Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors, to out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It's October 7th, 2020, and you're listening to episode 18. Today, we speak with Tracy Franklin about becoming the first head distiller apprentice supported by the Nearest and Jack Advanced Initiative. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. Hey, do you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, A Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. <laughs> Let's. Cheers. cheers. With National Bourbon Heritage Month just behind us, we're taking a look at the growth of the whiskey industry over the last few years to see what's leading it. It's no secret that the whiskey category has been ascendant for some time now. But what are the numbers? There's definitely been considerable growth in the production and sales of blended scotch and single malts, but to what extent? By the 1970s, consumer preferences had turned to unaged and clear spirits, such as vodka and tequila, leaving distillers to sit on millions of barrels of whiskey. Today, we're seeing the opposite, and the production and sale of bourbon are far from slowing. Last year, production in Kentucky, which is responsible for the lion's share of bourbon produced in any given year, was four times greater than it was in 1999, and now fills more than 1.7 million barrels. And according to the Kentucky Distillers Association, or KDA, bourbon production in the bluegrass state is the highest it's been since 1972. The combination of four key factors has fueled unparalleled growth in the bourbon industry over recent decades, states Eric Gregory, president of the KDA. First, the introduction of single-barrel and single-batch expressions in the 80s and early 90s boosted bourbon's reputation as a high-quality spirit. Second, the emergence of a global export market in the mid-90s enabled bourbon to compete with scotch and many other international whiskeys. Third, the cocktail renaissance in the early 2000s repopularized the old-fashioned and other classic bourbon-forward cocktails. Fourth, the Kentucky Bourbon Trail, inspired by the success of the California wine country and established by the KDA in 1999, has fostered the growth of whiskey tourism. The trail, which was launched with fewer than 10 distilleries, now counts 38 stops and in 2018 saw a record 1.4 million visits. What might come as a surprise to those who think bourbon is an old man's drink is the fact that the largest age group among current bourbon consumers is 25 to 54 years old. That the percentage of bourbon drinkers who are non-white has risen across the board. Between 2013 and 2019, the number of Asian consumers increased by 36%, while the number of African-American consumers rose by 22%. While the coronavirus pandemic has helped boost off-premise sales by 29.7% since the same time last year, 
Bourbon's future position in the global market is perhaps less bright. Why? The growth in sales attributable to COVID-19 notwithstanding, the 25% tariff imposed on American whiskey by the EU in 2018 has contributed to a $295 million decline in American whiskey exports. That said, from a domestic standpoint, bourbon makers seem poised for continued growth. Up next, we speak with Tracy Franklin, who tells us how she went from singing Winnie the Pooh in dozens of languages on stages all over the world to being the first head distiller apprentice supported by the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative. Stay with us. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, our very special guest is Tracy Franklin. Tracy is, well, Tracy is many things. Professional thespian, bartender, spirits expert, whiskey evangelist. But today, she's here in her sparkly new capacity as the very first head distiller apprentice of the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. Woohoo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to have you. Right? <laughs> well, you know, a few weeks ago, we spoke with Fawn Weaver of Uncle Nearest Distillery. Yes. And we learned some bit tidbits about this initiative. So when we found out you were the first recipient, we were very excited to call you up and have <laughs> you come join us. Well, thank you so much. It's an incredible honor to be a part of this program. I think it is like so many other brands and companies within the whiskey industry, everybody wants to help and they want to create diversity in a way that hasn't been seen before. And I think that being a part of the first team, Nearest and Jack seem to be the first to have just jumped on a program and get it started. So being the first to hit market is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. And for the benefit of our listeners, we are referring to Uncle Nearest and Jack Daniels. Yes, yeah, so they together. Right, right. And if they don't know who those people are at this point. Then you're listening to the wrong podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, but let's get to that later and you can lay the details on us. Yeah. So first, we always ask, what is your whiskey journey? And we can tell by your bio and everything that you've had a vast whiskey career already. Yes. But what brought you into the world of whiskey and how did you decide this is the step you wanted to take? And where did you grow up? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a complicated question at all. <laughs> Tracy, we just want your life story. We want it all right now. Two minutes. Go. Go. <laughs> I was actually, I'm a military brat. My father was in the Air Force, where we did, so we did travel quite a bit. I grew up mostly, though, in California. Mm -hmm. My father really wanted to ensure stability in our lives in some small way. So he traveled a lot. So he went TDY a lot. And we stayed in California for a lot of the time once we were a little bit more stable. That's good. That's good. Good choice yeah. of state. Yeah, it did help. <laughs> I mean, I definitely missed my father, but it did help for us to at least be able to stay in one place for an extended period of time. And where in California was that? A small town called Water, California. Okay. Oh. Yeah. So Merced, I think it was the bigger city. And the Modesto was our like okay. big town that we go to. All right. Yes. Very good. For anyone that knows the area. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I'm from San Jose and yeah. You, so. Then you know it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot of farmland. It was a great place to grow up. It was small. Everyone knew everyone. And because it was a military base, there was a bit more diversity there. Sure. Yeah. And so as a neighborhood, it was a good place to be. And my father, since he was traveling a lot, he would bring those cultures back to us. We would search and seek out the foods and the drinks and the experiences that he had in other communities around California. Thankfully, there were a lot of immigrant communities and wonderful, diverse communities throughout the state. So we would seek out those cuisines. 
That's awesome. And that really set my life on a path that, that it is on. So I knew from a young age that I wanted to travel. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to eat and drink the different flavors of the world. And that is kind of how I, I stumbled upon whiskey. I was already doing it. I was traveling the world with a Disney production. Nice. And I was in Canada and I was sitting at a bar and I couldn't drink a lot because I was I had to sing every morning and I w- wanted to make sure that I always sounded good. So I would sit. What was the Disney show? It was Winnie the Pooh. Oh, Winnie the yes. Pooh. Yep. Oh, bother. Anyway. So I was the storyteller. So I sang that song every day in nine languages. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Because we were traveling the world. So I had to learn it in a local language, which was really cool. Okay. Learned that I'm really good at learning and repeating languages. Cool. You don't know you have that skill until someone tests you. Yeah. You're a good mimic. I am. Now, were you able to speak these languages more than just singing the song or? I would learn a large portion of the script. We had a local person who would come in and basically be my helper. So they would do a lot of the speaking in case things went wrong and we actually needed to talk to the audience or do something or create an improv, you know, if mistakes happened. So there was somebody who was a local in person from the area. So, and then I learned responses and and parts of the script in the local language and then all of the songs in the local languages. Wow. That's really cool. Okay. So you got a local coach with each stop. Exactly. But what would happen Mm -hmm. is before I got to each place, I got a disc basically with all of the songs and the dialogue just sounded out. And I would sit and use my phonetic alphabet and I would write it all back out in phonetics Wow! and study it and memorize it before I got to the next country. And then in the next country, I would be speaking Thai. Huh. (laughs) So you got fluent in IPA. Oh, yes. And I don't mean India Pale Ale. No, you did not. It's the International Phonetic <laughs> Alphabet. And I learned it in school. And who knew? Like most people that do it, I can't think there's many reasons that you actually use it outside of studying theater. And then I used it every day. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really incredible. And I was very, very grateful for it. Yeah. But while I was touring, exploring these amazing countries and people and cultures, I also wanted to find cuisines and foods that really tied to those experiences. And while I was in Canada, I was sitting at a bar and somebody opened a whiskey that smelled of smoke and ash and band-aids and dead sea animals. And I thought, that smells delightful. And I asked him to bring it over and I tried my first peated whiskey. And it's not that I had whiskey before and it was just like, okay, but this was a visceral experience. Right. My entire body reacted to the flavor of this and that was exciting to me. And it was my jumping off point of really wanting to explore and learn about whiskey because I realized it could be so different from what I had had previously. Do you recall the brand? Oh, yes. It was Ardbeg, of course. Okay. It was Ardbeg. Yes. Okay. It was Ardbeg 10. As I continued down this journey, I really got heavily involved in the peated whiskey aspect and remember a friend getting me just like a soft space, a space like whiskey. And I was just like, this doesn't taste like anything. They're like, actually, it's really beautiful and lovely. And there's a lot of delicacy in that. You probably are screwing up your palate. I'm like, hmm, let me consider that. (laughs) So I actually stopped drinking peated whiskeys for a while and just kind of reset, really started exploring more rye whiskey and American whiskeys and just other styles that weren't quite as prevalent in those phenols and really got got my palate acclimated to different styles of whiskey. And then as I was doing that, I had a ton of support from brand representatives, ambassadors, experts, writers, 
But I noticed there weren't a lot of people that looked like me mm. on that side of the industry or mm-hmm. even at the tastings that I was at. Oh, wow. So a friend and I, Jennifer Wren, who currently works for Dalmore and Jura. Mm-hmm. We know Jen. Oh, Jenny Wren. She and I decided to start Worski. So Worski was a whiskey marketing company aimed at creating diversity in the world of whiskey. And that is really how our name started to get known within the industry. So in New York, we were starting to make events for brands that were unusual, things like cupcake tastings and roller skating and whatever we could think of that we could just add whiskey to and really educate a curious whiskey drinker. And from there, because neither of us had any money, we were poor actors. I think it was the best business model. And if we had continued, it would have been an incredibly successful business today, but we just didn't have the means. So mm-hmm. we went to the brand side. Woo-hoo. <laughs> Yay. We- For our listeners, that's not synonymous with the dark side. I didn't say that. I said the brand side. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a different side. Absolutely. So Jenny went first. She worked with Glenn Fittick on the West Coast. And I actually moved down to Tampa. My husband got a job with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So I moved to a whiskey bar down there and was working with a bar with 400 whiskeys behind me, having a wonderful time. So I moved down to Tampa, Florida. My husband got a job with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and I started working at a whiskey bar. The whiskey bar had 400 whiskeys behind me. It was amazing. Wow. And it gave me the opportunity to really craft people's experiences. So I was able to teach people about whiskey through flights. Like I actually was able to use the flavors behind me as tools. Were you bartending by this time? Yes. Okay. All right. Yes. Basically, I was performing in New York and bartending at the same time because you need a gig to make some money. Okay. Right. Sure, sure. And then when I moved down to Florida, I thought I would still do both, but it was, I'm equity. Yeah. And there weren't a lot of jobs in Florida that were paying what I needed. Of course. So I just worked at the bar. Right. And it wasn't long that I was working behind the bar when a gentleman sat in front of me who was the brand manager for Glenn Fiddick, mm-hmm. and he asked for my resume. And did you give it to him? I did, of course. <laughs> I sent him a nice email saying, thank you so much for coming to the bar. You have to follow up, guys. Right, right. And here is my resume as requested. Uh-huh. At that time, I didn't actually have the experience they wanted. So then I went and got history from there. I worked my way through. Okay, very good. I got a little bit more experience in what they were looking for. And then a year later, I got hired by Glenn Fiddick. And worked for Glenn Fiddick for three and a half years. And now I'm here. Ah, very good. Very. Your bio references how you developed your bartending skills and expertise. Yeah. says that you studied with some of the greats in New York. Can you drop a few names? My biggest influence, especially on the distillation price side, is Dave Pickerel. So Dave was the first one as we would stay up late talking distillation. Of course. Uh-huh. And then he was one of the first to take me out. I actually was one of the first people to start up the still at Whistlepig. So Mortimer, one of their first distillations was while Dave was setting that up. Uh-huh. And I was able to be there and really troubleshoot with him. And that was an incredible experience. I learned so much. Sure. Dave Pickerel was very good at staying up late and talking. Yes. Yes. And that's what I loved because we were bartending, whatever it may be, and we were up late. So even like texting him late at night, these random questions that I would have, Mm -hmm. he recommended so many incredible old distillation books that just gave me a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And I always took the, this knowledge and this, this viewpoint into whatever job I was going into. So even though I was working in Scotch whiskey, I was able to take these distillation ideas and really apply them to the flavors that were in my whiskeys. And now this opportunity, because Dave kept trying to get me to distill. He kept trying to put me at distilleries. Really? Yeah. It wasn't working out because I needed a certain amount of money. I needed a certain stability. I needed to be in certain places. And every time that opportunity came, it wasn't quite right. Right. And then 
the opportunities kept coming that, you know, something like the ambassador for Glenfiddich Single Malt Scotch, my goal when I started in this industry was really morphed into me being able to say that I want to change the face of whiskey. I want for people to no longer just imagine that the whiskey drinker is a middle-aged, wealthy, white man. Right. I don't want that. I want for people to think whiskey and like have no face Mm -hmm. and think that it looks like everyone that's representative of America. It is everyone that's representative of the globe, that any person could be a whiskey drinker. Right. Because at the point that I was coming in, we all thought, and every single sell sheet you got was, this is the target market. I want that target person to now be like all adjectives that are, you know, <laughs> sure. go-getter, mm. smart, sure. you know, still can have some money, but it's no longer about a male or female. It's no longer affluent or I want it to be broad. Right. Equal opportunity qualifiers. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So when I was coming into this, that became kind of the core of what I wanted to do. And I kept getting these opportunities to represent different brands in Florida and in New York. And I just wanted to be there as a woman of color to show people, yes, I know about whiskey. Yes, I love whiskey. And let's talk. And please stop looking down my shirt. (laughs) That's terrible. But you know, it is also a part of it. Yeah. Sure. And so getting people to actually respect a woman, a woman of color on top of that, that was standing behind a bar talking to you about whiskey was really something I wanted to do. And the opportunities that came, I had to take them and taking Glenfiddich and then being moved up to national ambassador was just incredible. For me, it was such a thrill and an honor Mm -hmm. to be able to be representative because representation matters. Seeing yourself matters. Agreed. Agreed. How many years did you represent Glenfiddich? Almost four years. It was about three and a half. And how many as a national ambassador? Uh, Well, honestly, not that long. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, let's go back. Let's go back. You were in the position four and a half years. Yes. Number of positions, but you were representing Glenfiddich for four and a half years. Did you see any change over that time, any demographic change over that time? Absolutely. And But what was wonderful about Glenfiddich is that they brought me in knowing what my goal was. Mm-hmm. They knew that I wanted to take this whiskey and broaden their audience. And it wasn't just going to be about that whiskey, but that whiskey would be my tool to kind of link people to Scotch whiskey and to give them a stepping point to ensure that we provided an entry point that was comfortable. And I wanted to be the beacon for that. Uh-huh. I wanted for people to come across me or my Instagram page or my post or my interviews and think, wow, she's drinking whiskey. She says I can do this. I'm going to do it. That's really what I want. And I did see that happen. And I had people tell me that I was the reason that they started drinking whiskey or they started in the category or they started to appreciate things about whiskey in a way that they hadn't before because I happened to cross their path and say something a little differently. Mm -hmm. Nice. I now have the opportunity to create that change in the American whiskey industry in this role. And I think we're ready. Uh, Tell us how the initiative came out. And as soon as it opened up, did you say, oh, that's what I'm doing? I'm applying. Well, what's interesting is it it hasn't even opened up quite yet. The website will be up, I believe, next month. The way that it happened is, as usual, kismet things. I was on a podcast with Fawn. We were earning money for the distillery in Minneapolis that was burned down. Yes. And we were all just talking about the industry, our roles, how we can change the world through relationship, through conversation just trying to put some positivity out into the world. Mm -hmm. And Fawn mentioned that she was going to be starting a program and opening a school of distillation at Motlow College. 
So me being the curious little bee that I am, <laughs> I immediately text her and said, hey, what is this school? How can I get on? Can you send me a curriculum? Like I love distillation, have been studying it on my own personally, but would love something a little more formal. She then immediately texts back, can we get on a call? And so we start talking about what I've done previously, what I was interested in learning, what I wanted to do with that education, and like just kind of how that could possibly work. And then she told me about the entire program that she was looking to create with Jack Daniels. Mm -hmm. And she said, I will put your name forward. So what happens is you basically right now they're taking you by recommendation. Okay. So I was recommended by Fawn, but there is a board that has people from the Jack Daniels board from their internal company and then also the uncle nearest. And they are going through candidates and sort of looking at your resume, checking your social media, any recommendations that you might have or not recommendations, but like when people recommend, what, what do I call them? References? Yes, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Yeah. So checking my resume, my references, going through all of that to really see what I can do with an opportunity. This is something someone asked me recently, how do I get this job? How do I get to be a part of this program? And I told them, you have to show your work. Meaning like in math class, you can come up with an answer. You can be in that leadership position, but if you can't show them what you did to get there, mm -hmm. what opportunities you took and you flip them on their head to be successful, to get to the next level. Right. If you can't show that work, it's really hard for people to offer you a position that really has, like, I'm not really right now creating anything. Okay. I am consuming. You. I am learning. <laughs> I'm growing. At this point, you are Tracy Franklin, the brand. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do feel like that. Yes. That's not a bad thing. You're right. <laughs> not a bad thing. It's not, but it's uncomfortable sometimes because I'm so used to producing. I'm used to saying, hey, I did this for you. Hey, I got your name here. I did this here, but that's not my job. My job now is to learn everything I can about distillation. Nice. It is to talk about this program so that other people will join it. It is to ensure that this program is successful by focusing in my energy on really learning and growing so that at the end of this year to year and a half, I'm able to step into a distillery as a person who can then improve somebody's process. I may not be ready at that time to run an entire distillery. I completely understand that, but I'm going to take every step I can to ensure that I'm as close to that as possible. I will have numerous certifications. I'm taking actual distillation classes. I'm going to be running in and out of different distilleries. I have incredible mentors that are throughout Kentucky, Tennessee, New York, all over the world, honestly. Yeah that I'm reaching out to at all times. So Fawn calls it a microwave distiller. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. There we go. Sure. Yeah. Power to high. Yeah. But I think I'm ready for that. And I'm incredibly humble that they trusted me in this position. They trusted me to lead the way, the groundwork for this program. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So are you still living in Florida or did you move to Tennessee? Oh, no, I moved from Florida. So okay. once I got the Glenfiddich position, they said I could move to either Philly, D.C. or stay in Florida. And we decided to move to D.C. Okay. Feels like a nice blend between like the slower pace of Florida and the faster pace of New York. It's kind of a good mix. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In many ways, Washington is a Southern town mm -hmm. and in many ways it's not. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you were in school, did you like science? I did. I actually loved it. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, good. So that's one of those things. So I am literally teaching myself general chemistry again. Oh, wow. That is one of my courses that I signed mm -hmm. up for. So I got my general chemistry and then also an organic chemistry is going to be starting in about a couple months. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And what's funny is a lot of the people like my mentors are like, you don't need that. 
they're like, you understand enough. You don't really need to understand like to that degree. Right. But again, as a microwave distiller, (laughs) (laughs) I want to make sure that I am doing everything in my power to be as educated as possible because I don't have the years of experience. So if I can have that book knowledge to then apply to that time when I'm in the distillery, I think it will only cement that much deeper. It will only be that much stronger when I do have to actually use that in real world situations. So mm-hmm. sure. Awesome. Can you talk to us more about the Nearest and Jack initiative and why it exists? Yes. We have an issue in the whiskey industry with diversity. Mm-hmm. That is an issue. We know that we are not a good representation of the population. Yep. And it is changing. It is changing as for consumers, like as drinkers, as people who love it. But it is also slowly changing with people who are employed mm-hmm. in the industry. And in order to be able to create one of the problems that we've seen as people who want to hire more people of color, women, LGBTQ, whatever it may be, whatever diversity we want to add, right? you sometimes get into the problem that, that access to the education you need and the experience you need to be in some of these positions isn't there for all people. It's mm-hmm. not as easily accessed for all communities. right? So in order to change that, the Nearest and Jack Advancement Initiative is creating different pathways. Mm-hmm. They're first creating the School of Distillation, so Nearest Jack School of Distillation, which will be at Motlow College, for people who decide, hey, I think I would like to be in the whiskey distillation, any sort of spirits industry. How long is the program for just distilling at Motlow? Not sure because it hasn't been started yet. I think it's going to get approval and will begin 2021 or 2022. Okay. Will it be an associate's degree? I believe so, but I am not sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sorry, guys. I just know that it's being created. That's all right. For the benefit of our listeners, I want to make sure they understand that this is a joint initiative. Yes. Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey, which was founded by Fawn Weaver, who's been mentioned several times in the course of this interview. And who we love. And whom we love. And the Jack Daniel Distillery. Yes. And of course, the history of those two brands is closely intertwined. Well, absolutely. Yes. So Jack Daniels learned to distill whiskey from Uncle Nearest, who was a rented slave on the Dan Call farm where Jack Daniels worked as a laborer. Um, He was a young child and he constantly wanted to go and distill. But Dan Call was like, no, that's not for kids. You cannot go there. (laughs) And as he worked there for a few more years, finally, he's like, okay, let's go. And he introduced Nathan Nearest Green to Jack Daniels as the best distiller he knew. And so Nathan Nearest Green taught Jack Daniel everything that he knew, and Jack Daniels then was able to turn that into his Jack Daniels distillery. Mm-hmm. One of the also one of the amazing things is when he actually created his own distillery, the Jack Daniels distillery, the first master distiller at full pay was Nathan Nearest Green. Which is awesome. Because he had been freed after, yes, after the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, he was freed and Mm -hmm. Jack Daniels hired him as his first master distiller. It's amazing. I love that story. Yeah, wonderful story. So working together to continue that legacy, I mean, if nothing else, to be a part of this story is an honor. It is an absolute honor as a woman of color to be able to continue this legacy. There are people of color right now currently working in the industry, but it's so few. And I want to just shine a light on everyone that is out there and to make sure that we're including more and creating and building up more and that we're honoring these legacies that have been lost and forgotten. So that's also something that's happening. There's a lot of researchers now going back to find the stories about these men and women who were enslaved and their contributions to the whiskey industry. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, 
to that point, Carrie and I, with this podcast, we work to achieve gender parity. Mm, yes. We also work to achieve ethnic diversity. And we've done very well on the gender parity. Yes, absolutely. And that's the biggest change I've seen throughout my career. Yes. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because there's a lot of rock and women out there. <laughs> and ethnic diversity, there are. It is. And that is just representative of the industry. It is a problem that we have. And Fawn and the people at Jack Daniels decided they wanted to make a difference. So they both stepped up and created a program that's addressing that. So with the school and then also for businesses that are already open, because there are distilleries that are owned by, I don't know, Black Indigenous people, because it's all, they want to create diversity in all ways. Sure. Right, right. So... Small businesses or just small distilleries, they're getting access to the marketing, to the networks of these larger distilleries. And then the leadership acceleration program is where I'm involved. So taking leaders of color, the people that are already in the industry and giving them that continued experience, uh, knowledge, whatever it is that you need to get to that, that final goal, that, you know, that pinnacle in the sky that you see yourself at, they are basically helping to lay those steps up into that role. So I want to be a distiller. I want to be in the process side. I want to understand and create flavor. I want to honor tradition, but also be a part of this new wave of innovation that I know is coming and has to come as we gain diversity and consumership. So I think that's beautiful. And I think the initiative is doing the Lord's work. Yes. Oh, yes. I mean, I feel that but I'm a recipient, so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, you're biased. Incredibly biased. Harry, can we get someone else for this episode? Incredibly biased. (laughs) Apparently, Tracy has sold herself out. Okay. (laughs) Somebody said, I don't know what I was on, but I I pulled out a bottle of Jack Daniels Single Barrel, and they're like, luckily, that's actually good. And I was like, yes, it is lucky. But even if it wasn't, they're paying for me to do my to live my life stream. So I would still drink it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just for the record, big fan of Jack Daniels whiskey here. Oh, what's funny is it ties. So for me, it comes full circle. My husband and I met at I was actually working as a bartender at a brewery and I, I did their beer education. And we met at the bar. He asked for a Jack Daniels. Aww. And yes, because his family's from Tennessee. And that was like the first whiskey he drank with his dad. And it's a brand that's been tied to our relationship and our lives for a long time. So I've always had a fondness for them. Yes. Wow. And we also, our wedding, our barrel, like the, we had our little altar was a Jack Daniels barrel. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's what I want. I want, yes. a, I want a barrel for my altar. Oh my Lord. The church of whiskey. It's awesome. You should do it. It's great pictures. <laughs> All right. But also that is something, and I don't know if one of the issues with getting sometimes black people, especially into whiskey or alcohol is the fact that our parents, our families, especially some of the older generations really look down on drinking. Oh, right. You really look down on alcohol. It yeah. is a vice. It can be incredibly dangerous in our communities. It has been used to tear apart communities. Right. And I understand that aspect of it. So I also want to ensure that as we are sharing what we love about whiskey and, and what we love about spirits, we're teaching people to drink responsibly. Mm-hmm. We're also providing them resources if they have an issue. Right. Yeah. Sure, sure. So that I can talk to you about these incredible flavors in whiskey, but I can also give you a number in case this is not for you. And I can make you a beautiful spirit-free cocktail if you need. Fawn Weaver is the child of teetotalers. Yep. Committed teetotalers. Really. I am as well. My parents didn't drink. <laughs> oh, nice. 
Yes. My parents were very religious. We grew up in a very, very religious church and we, they didn't drink. Mm-hmm. So what did they think when you started working as a bartender and then decided that you wanted to make whiskey your life's work? My parents still today, my, well, my mother, my father has passed. I think he would be proud though. He started drinking with me when I, I used to make him take a little, little sips with me. Oh. He was like, well, yeah, I know you have the good stuff. So we would sit and like, I would teach him and we'd talk through. <laughs> the sins of his old age. Right? <laughs> <laughs> So maybe they weren't quite as teetotal as, as Fawn's parents. My, okay. All right. But All right. they just didn't drink. Our church didn't drink. So if someone had beer, like he'd have a beer right now just to like see kind of what it's like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was not a part of our lives. And when I actually started in this and like now my mother, she's just like, I am so proud of you, but I just wish it wasn't whiskey. Can't <laughs> mother said. I just wish it wasn't. <laughs> Couldn't you be a brain surgeon? Couldn't you look into that? Yeah. Fawn's mother said, I really well, love what you're doing for Nearest Green and his family, but man, I wish you made lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where my path would have led had I gone with my mother's plan because she did want me to become a doctor with which is why I say I actually really did enjoy science. Enjoy science, yeah. But got stuck. I got stung by this theater bug, and my father was like, "Do that, yeah." Oh wow! Go be an artist. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So right. I took right. that left Very turn. Good. How long were you performing on the road? How many years? I don't want to talk about that because then uh, people will start to figure out my age. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I see. Okay. No comment. No, I was on the road for quite a few years. I hide my age. I don't know why. It's because I've been in theater for so long. So, well, they, people can't tell how old you would be anyway. So, because you look like you're 20. So, it's true. Well, in the performing arts, particularly film and television, once you're beyond a certain age, the doors close. Exactly. And I knew that I could play whatever for a long time. And my agents always just really stressed to not talk about my age, to really not let that be out there. And it's something that kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to college. I graduated with a degree in musical theater and immediately started actually on a cruise ship touring the world. And that- <laughs> yeah, that, that's such a well-worn path. Right? Yes. So I traveled the Mediterranean, the Baltic, and then I was like, you know what? I'm done with that. But then I booked the Disney, I did Winnie the Pooh and traveled the world with that for a few years. And that took me all over the world. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. We started in New Zealand, Australia, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, China, Peru, Costa just everywhere you can think of. That's unreal. Europe. That's glorious. Yeah, it was because so many people get to travel like that when they're part of the military. Uh-huh. That whenever I talk about the travel I've taken, people are like, oh, you must be military. It's like, yes, uh-huh. my father was, but actually I traveled because I could sing. <laughs> Question, were you at all into spirits at the time? Because traveling all these places, you could have had Pisco straight from the Spigot. I know, right? The cashew spirit that comes out of India and, you know, these, these glorious things. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So I did drink them, okay. but I didn't understand them. Okay. Mm-hmm. I drank them because I wanted to drink what the locals were drinking. I wanted to understand what it was, but I was much more focused in on the food, on the dining aspect of like mm-hmm. eating random things in the street. Yeah. That's also a wonderful experience. There's no, <laughs> no demerits there. Right. So, but I wish, I'm like, just hindsight. I mean, I had opportunities, like you said, to drink some of the world's finest anything that may be distilled in the world right now. Uh uh And I just, that wasn't the goal. The goal was to eat the strangest things I could find. (laughs) Well, you know, Philistines can always be reformed. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) 
let's go back a little bit to you want to be a distiller yes, or you want to have something to do with that. So when you're done with all your courses and everything's good to go, what kind of whiskey do you want to make or what kind of whiskey do you not want to make? I want a job. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to make bad whiskey, right? I will go where they will have me. Exactly. We can establish that you don't want to make bad whiskey. We will make good whiskey at a distillery that hires me. Well, no, I mean, do you want to make like a peated single malt and you don't want to make a rye or, you know, I mean, if you, if you. No, I hear you. I hear you. I understand the question. I just am being very practical (laughs) in my mindset, but maybe you're right. Maybe I should, because what's funny about this whole situation is just a few weeks prior to this all coming together. So this happened very quickly. I had just written out a whole new sort of life statement. Like I sat down and I said, this is what I want my life to look like. I want these things. I want to change these positions. This about relationships, this about work, this about my salaries, this about like I had gone through and just been and really set goals. And this clicked so many boxes. Mm -hmm. It was just surprising. So maybe you're right. And I need to actually start creating that job that I'm going to have at the end of this program. Like write that out. Yeah. I don't know. You close no doors. Like, what if they just say, hey, we want you to come and be our master distiller? What if somebody says that right off the bat and they let you make any kind of whiskey you want? What would your range be? Oh, gosh. Golly. I mean, I'd probably start only because it is so near and dear to my heart with an American single malt. Mm -hmm. Okay. Peated or unpeated? Unpeated. Okay. Well, just as my initial, just because I feel like to really gauge my tools, my equipment, I would want to have something that's first, let's tune into the actual distillate and the grain and what, where that flavor sits. Okay. Then I can start to add peat or these, but I have to first understand the way I want that grain to be expressed and what my equipment can do. Okay. So, you know, I would leave open all possibilities. Who knows? You might become the black woman who made white dog famous. <laughs> Crickets. Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> <White dog>. <laughs> <laughs> I get your point. You're going to come out of that place knowing how to make spirits. Yes. Knowing how to make them well. Yes. Who knows where this journey is going to take you. Right. Yeah. And honestly, right now, I just, I'm ecstatic to just know that at the end of this, I will be a benefit to a distillery, mm-hmm. that I will be an asset that I, yep. and then that following behind me will be more people who are going to come in and really start to make waves and create opportunity and to open up this industry in a way that we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Making the whiskey is like half of what is bringing me the joy. The other half is really knowing that this is laying the groundwork. This is a brick by brick process to creating change mm-hmm. in the industry. And then hopefully that will then reflect into the world that we start to show that diversity creates improvement in every aspect of an industry. So as we start to do this here other industries hopefully will also see that and take that into their worlds as well. Very cool. Good thing there's no pressure on you. None at all. I got this. (laughs) Zero pressure. (laughs) No pressure. So we often talk about cocktails towards the end of our interviews. And since you used to be a bartender, tell us about your favorite kind of cocktails and then Philip will- I'll I'll chime in. Chime in with his usual. But uh, you know- We want to know what you like. We want to know where you go. I am pretty boring, actually. Well, (laughs) this has been a really.
really boring conversation, let me tell you. <laughs> Only because I really enjoy letting the spirit shine through. So I'm definitely a boozy drink person. I like to do stirred boozy cocktails. Mm. Great. Tend to lean towards a, a Rob Roy. That doesn't surprise me. Every now and then we'll throw in some really cool sort of homemade syrup. Or I made this jerk tincture once, mm-hmm. and I'm going to make it again soon. Okay. So basically, took all the spices that you use in a jerk. And did you need our address for mailing that? <laughs> so you honestly. I, so you so your Jamaican jerk mixture, man. What was wonderful is that it's just because it's just like bitters, but it had this incredible spice and I used habanero. So it was also heat. I used these scotch bonnets in there. So I've got this incredible heat as well as all that, the allspice, the nutmeg, all this beautiful jerk spice, like just this really earthy, grounded sort of spiciness and it just a few dashes in anything, especially in something with a brown spirit in it. Mm-hmm. So good. I could only imagine. Okay, so I think I've decided we need to have that. <laughs> no, joking aside, because this okay. is what we need to give Louise for the segment about food. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Okay, sounds like I need to get get cracking, girl. <laughs> I will. That would be wonderful if there's any possibility. Yeah, you had me at stirred aromatics. I'm very much brown spirit forward. Doesn't have to be whiskey. It could be an extra añejo agave spirit. Ah, I agree. Honestly, yes. But a brown spirit forward stirred aromatic cocktail. Oh my God. Yes. Well, we are the same. We would enjoy similar drinks for sure. Indeed. Indeed. However, I do not turn my nose up at a beautifully balanced five to one gin martini. Oh, no. Absolutely. Love that too. Oh, yes. Yes. Those are good. Chill down like dash of orange bitters. Mm -hmm. Oh, life. Life. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who life? Oh, I haven't had a gin martini in a while. I think I'll have to do that soon. Right? It's mm. just one of those things that I crave every now and then. About every couple of weeks, I'm like, I need a martini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, good, good. Good stuff. That's very awesome. Okay, well, great. If you do get a chance to send us a little sample, I will be happy to give you an address to send that to. So Wonderful. Thank you. I know that Louise would be excited to work with that. Yeah, it's really delicious. So I will definitely try to get on that this weekend if I can. Um, half of the training goes on so we can get you know a little update. Yes. That would be wonderful. And then after you're done and you're you know some famous distiller being <laughs> all cool, and, you know, too cool for school. And we want first dibs on your first ready for primetime batch. I love it. The white dog we're making famous, that one? Yes. Right, yeah, that yes. one. There we go. Exactly. <laughs> Leave open all possibilities. You know what? I'll take that white dog and I will age it in my own barrels right here. Oh, you see? <laughs> There's a whole business proposition. You sell your white dog to people who want to age it themselves. <laughs> I think that probably exists. I think somebody's doing that. It does. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are they sending this with the spirals or something with it? Yeah, but you have to have good white dog to make it. Oh, yeah. It's true. I agree. And that's something people don't understand. And Uncle Nearest has very good white dog. Yes, actually. And you can't even find it anywhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, they don't sell it. We did a dinner here in LA this February with Victoria Edie Butler. Yes. And she brought White Dog both pre and post Lincoln County process. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a really information. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really good. It was really good. Yeah. Honestly, it's the best White Dog that I've had, other than right from a still. I mean. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, you can't <laughs> much better than right from a still. 
Tracy, this has been a delight. Thank you. I had a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for talking to me, for bringing me on, for really putting a spotlight on this program, because I think it is going to really create the change that we need. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping so. I'm rooting for it 100%. Fingers crossed. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So anyway, thank you so much. And we will catch up with you in the near future and see where you're leading us to. Can't wait. All right. All right. Talk soon. Bye. 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 World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel that offers a diverse and growing slate of food and drink series, featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are culinary quickies, Le Cocktail Du Jour, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. Upcoming shows include Cocktails, The Grand Tour, a new series starring Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. The Cocktail Guru, the award-winning Music and Booze with Mo, featuring Mo Herms and his series of musically spirited cocktailians, and an all-new wine podcast, hosted by Silver Pin Certified Sommelier Stacy Hunt. We're streaming culinary culture, so please visit YouTube, search for the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. Hey, Louise, good to have you here today. And uh, I brought over a beautiful tincture that was homemade by Tracy Franklin. I smelled it, loved it, put it in my cocktail last night. Delicious. What'd you think? Oh, I thought it was really, really interesting. I actually tasted it before reading what the actual ingredients were in it because I wanted to see if I could pick up on it. Um, Do a little test for yourself there. Yeah, I mean, I do that a lot because I think one of the ways that you become a better cook is by knowing how to taste. And that's what I that's tell true. people all the time. It's like, you know, following a recipe only gets you so far. You have to be able to taste something and understand like what's there and then how you can use that in your own cooking. So Absolutely. And that's what they always say during whiskey tastings, too. They're like, think about the spices in your cabinet and the food that's, you know, just kind of like soak yourself into what you're smelling and tasting. And it's interesting to see what you can actually pick out. Yeah, I mean, people ask me all the time, like, oh, I'm trying to become a better cook. I bought this knife. I bought these pots and pans. They always talk about the equipment. You know, (laughs) oh, I bought this book about and I'm like, you know what is going to make you a better cook all the way around is if you go out and eat. You need to go and eat (laughs) people's food and think about it, you know, and part of that is like, you know, eating food, you know, from cultures that maybe you didn't grow up with or you weren't familiar with in your lifetime and like figuring, you know, learning new flavor combos and profiles. So, you know, and obviously I apply that to not just my own cooking, but when I'm thinking about drinks or cocktails or anything like that too. Right. Cool. All right. So what'd you do with it? So I figured that the easiest thing to do. Well, was- hey, first, what 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 things did you pick out of it uh, that you could that was on the recipe that she sent us? Oh, right. So I immediately knew that there was some sort of chili pepper in there. Now I mm-hmm. couldn't tell you which one it was, but definitely it's like okay, well, there's definitely a spice level that is of a 
chili varieties. So that's right. for sure. I definitely picked up on peppercorns, though the the Szechuan peppercorns I didn't pick up right away, and I love them. But I knew there were some peppercorns in there, and then of course the warm spices are very prevalent. The um, the allspice, and then the cinnamon, and you know the thing about. Once I figured out, oh, I can taste some allspice. Then when I read the actual ingredients, I'm like, okay, this makes perfect sense that we've got Trinidadian Scotch bonnet chilies. You know, allspice is a very common um, ingredient with uh, these types of chilies in that part of the Caribbean. Um, you know, one of the main, like, you know, with. I mean, in that part of the Caribbean specifically, Trinidad, but also like in Jamaican cooking, you know, they'll always tell you, you cannot have a real jerk chicken unless that is uh, cooked over pimento wood. And that is the wood where the allspice berries come from. So it all right. plays in to each other. Um, and cool. then, I, you know, yeah. And then I read about the Szechuan peppercorns and it just was like, okay, well, the easy thing to do would be to make a cocktail, but I wanted to think of this in a way that you might be able to do something fun and quick at home that, um, you know, to eat. So I use bitters like with ice cream all the time. It's uh -huh. like a very easy trick if you're having a dinner party and it's too hot, you're not going to bake anything. It's like, I just need a quick, like, like refreshing dessert at the end of the meal. So sometimes I'll just pull out some store-bought ice cream and put an interesting bitters with it, maybe some fresh fruit or whatever, and call it a day. So with this one, I thought, well, coconut ice cream would be spectacular with this. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you could gild the lily and add some maybe dark chocolate sauce with it, or you could just cut up a really ripe, juicy, fresh mango, I think would be a thing. And, yeah. and a few dashes of this tincture and you're done that's a, yeah. a really awesome easy fast little dessert to have at the end of a meal yeah i can totally see that i think the coconut ice cream would be a very good compliment to all the nutmeg the cinnamon the cardamom and the, the black peppers and all of that i think that would be yeah, and of course chocolate tropical. i mean you gotta have chocolate yeah yeah so it's all the tropics awesome. and then like even if you're if you're if you did decide to go with a chocolate sauce you know we've we've tasted chocolate with spicy food plenty of times because we get that you know throughout mexico a lot right. of, there's a lot of mixing of cacao and chilies and so i think at this point in time a lot of people here in the u.s anyway have probably experienced having chocolate with something spicy at some point in time right so that wouldn't be such an odd combo either to me yeah so when I tasted this, I first of all, I thought this is one of the best little tanctures I've ever had. And I, I think she should sell it. I mean, I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I don't see why not. I think there would be an absolute. I mean, look how the bitters industry has grown exponentially in the last even just 10 years. It used oh, for sure. to be the only bitters you could find was Angostura, you know, at the supermarket. Maybe you could find Peychaud's if, you know, you were in certain parts of the country. Of course, in New Orleans. Yeah. Right. But, I mean, you didn't find any other bitters. Now you go into any liquor store and it doesn't even have to be a specialty liquor store there will be at least a handful of interesting bitters that 10 years ago you would have never found so right. this these tinctures you know can easily live alongside of that 
Right. For example, um, our good friend Seth over at uh, the Broken Barrel. I mean, he's got a whole bunch of bitters that he's made out, which I mean, that's all the stuff is going out on the market. And and I think it's a I think it's a very good compliment to all the things that you can make in today's. Yeah, it gives people it gives people, especially right now during during covid times and everybody you know people aren't going out to bars they're making more cocktails at home by having more bitters in your arsenal you can create a whole like you know a whole new world of cocktails at home that you maybe weren't doing before right i mean me myself i think i have at least seven different types of bitters in my bar right now or my refrigerator depending if they're open or not yeah um, which is great sounds about right to me all right. Uh, and I think, you know, I think once Tracy finishes her, her master distilling program and she gets hired, I think maybe this will be something she can add to her whiskey making. She can put out something very unique to not just her whiskey making, but with her with her tankshire. Maybe she can make some sort of a, a bottled cocktail that would have this. I don't know. It's good. Yeah. Ship good. it out to California ASAP, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, she did. She was pretty quick. I mean, I have to give kudos to Tracy. I do want to give a, a kudos and a, and a shout out. Thank you to Tracy because she was on her way to Kentucky to start her program and she still had found time to make this and uh, ship it out to us so that we could get it out to you for this, this week's show. Well, so, I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, me too. Um, Philip is like, is there any left for me? I'm like, mm, a, little, a little bit. <laughs> so Not, not um, coming for me, Philip. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, no. No, I gave you the biggest part because you, you have to cook with it. So he's going to get a little dropper full. He can have it in his cocktail. Yeah. So. Anyway, well, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today about Tracy's Tankshire. And I think it was delicious. And we'll see what we got next week. Sounds good. Talk to you then. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salam. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.